We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Race, gender, work, and inequality form the core of sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield's research. She's a sociology professor at Washington University, and her latest study looks at those topics in the context of the medical field and a rapidly changing economy. St. Louis Public Radio contributor John Larson recently spoke with Professor Wingfield about her research for her forthcoming book. It's titled Flatlining, Healthcare Work, Race, and Inequality in the New Economy. My current project is a look at black healthcare workers. I was interested in trying to think about how a lot of changes in the economy and changes to how we work had an impact on black professionals specifically. And healthcare seemed like an industry that's obviously undergoing a great deal of change and uh, restructuring. So I thought it would be a really useful site for trying to understand how black professionals in a field that's changing were experiencing these, these shifts that are happening with work. What are you finding? Uh, so a lot of interesting things. The main argument that I make in the forthcoming book is that for black healthcare workers, efforts that organizations are making to try to focus on issues related to diversity aren't necessarily going far enough, and they're not necessarily reaching a broad variety of workers. One of the things that I think is interesting about the book is that I look at black doctors, nurses, technicians, and physician assistants, and their experiences with race in the workplace differ depending on what sort of job they're doing. And what I'm finding is that organizational attempts to address black workers' experiences often paint with a pretty broad brush and don't necessarily take into consideration how those experiences can change depending on what sort of job the professionals are working in. Well, you think of a medical doctor as running the whole show. What mm-hmm. kind of challenges would a black doctor have? So interestingly, for black doctors, it varies by gender in some ways. Broadly speaking, for a lot of black doctors, the challenges that they experience are not really the sort of kind of everyday experiences with discrimination that might be the sort of overt things that we might think about for black doctors. They talk to me a lot more about more structural or cultural biases, these ideas that they have to really go out of their way to prove themselves to people who might assume that they aren't qualified or competent, or the barriers that keep doctors or keep people of color out of the medical profession in the first place. So disparities in education, disparities in lack of of funding that allows people to undergo the very expensive training that's required for medicine. For black women, though, a lot of their challenges were much more stark when it came to issues related to gender. Pretty much every black woman doctor that I spoke with talked about being mistaken for the nurse or being called miss instead of doctor, even after introducing themselves as doctor. So for them, the sort of structural barriers that make it difficult for black doctors were present. But when they thought about the everyday challenges that they encountered in medicine, it was definitely things that were related to these experiences of being a black woman doctor specifically. I suppose it makes it even more difficult then for them to go into private practice? Well, for a lot of black professionals, I found that many of them actually are more interested in the public sector work because they are focused on wanting to address racialized health disparities and serve the populations that they see as being the most in need. And in many cases, the public sector is where we treat the patients who 
economically have the least. This is where we see the highest numbers of uh, poor black, Latino, Asian American patients who may not have private health insurance and have to rely on public facilities. So many black doctors were actually driven to that sector, but they also talked a lot about how the under-resourcing of the public sector has really made their jobs a lot more difficult. For black doctors who did go into private practice, they were able to escape some of those resourcing challenges, but still often dealt with the structural barriers that I spoke about. And for black women doctors in particular, often dealt with still this challenge of not being perceived to be someone who was qualified or suited for medicine because of their status as women. Is the majority of that pushback coming from white patients and white peers? In some cases, yes, but not exclusively. I did speak with some uh, doctors who talked about particularly older black patients who, I guess, were more accustomed to an earlier era where there were even fewer black doctors than there are now. But in most cases, when respondents talked about encountering patients who didn't trust them or didn't really believe that they could be doctors, those typically were more likely to be white patients. When you were doing your research, were you looking at illness and disease that was adversely affecting the African-American culture? And did you find any ties between having a black doctor was more of an insurance policy against some of these diseases and illnesses? Right. I didn't look specifically at health in terms of connections between race and disease and illness. But there is research that suggests that for patients of color and black patients in particular, health outcomes can be improved by having doctors of the same race. And I think a lot of that stems from the somewhat contentious history that black people have had with the medical establishment at large. We can think of kind of obvious examples like the Tuskegee experiment to show ways in which black patients have been mistreated by the healthcare system and the ways in which I think that may have developed a collective memory that affects the ways in which black people respond to and look at uh, aspects of the, the medical establishment. So research does show that those connections do matter. I was looking more so at the experiences of black workers in the healthcare system, but I did find that when it comes to uh, these relationships between these groups and the ways in which black patients may regard and be mindful of uh, the ways in which black practitioners might treat them differently, that black healthcare workers were aware of that also. And that was something that was constantly at the forefront of their mind in terms of how they treated patients, particularly because in many cases they saw that their colleagues often did not offer black patients, particularly black poor patients, the same level of deference and courtesy. So they really were mindful of the ways in which their treatment could potentially offset the ways that they might be mistreated by white practitioners, and that that could, at least hypothetically, have an impact on maybe psychosomatically combating some aspects of disease and illness that might be more prevalent in black communities. What interested you most about this? You mean in coming into the project or in terms of my findings? Your findings and the project. Uh, Coming into the project, I wanted to think more about how changes to work were having an impact on black professionals. And I wasn't really seeing a lot of that in most of the sociological research on work and inequality. There was a pretty decent older literature that talked about black professionals, broadly speaking. But most of that was written before a lot of the major changes that have happened in our economy. There wasn't anything that looked at uh, how black professionals were experiencing work in a post-recession era or in a context of enormous income inequality or, to a lesser degree, in an era where the public sector that has historically been an era where black professionals could find comfortable, stable work has been steadily shrinking and eroded over the past several decades. So I wanted to think a lot about how those changes were having an impact on black workers. What does that 
daily work experience look like when you're dealing with all of these structural changes and in an environment where, on paper at least, it looks like you've made it, so to speak, because you're in this professional job, but you're in this professional job where professional work itself has become a lot less secure, a lot less stable, and not necessarily the route to upward mobility that it had been in previous decades. So that was my initial interest in coming into the project. In terms of the things that were interesting to me about the findings, I think a lot of that had to do with the differences that I saw between occupations and seeing how much black doctors' experiences could be very different from black nurses' experiences, which then were very different from black technicians' experiences. And I think that's important to give a much more nuanced view of both work and inequality and how that relates to race. Because when we talk about black professionals, I think there's a pretty sort of narrow window that we have of what that looks like, right? We might think of a few people who are examples of black doctors or teachers or attorneys or what have you. If we look at current media, for example, we get shows like Blackish or Insecure that show us examples of a few black professional workers. But we don't really get a clear look at how there's kind of a broad category of black professional workers whose experiences may not necessarily all mirror each other and may not all be the same. So I found it really interesting to think about how even within this group of workers who would all be considered people who do professional work and have these white collar jobs, there was still a lot of variance within that category and that their experiences didn't necessarily mirror each other. If you had a magic wand, what's the fix? Oh, boy. I'm not sure. <laughs> the fix. I'm not sure the fix is a magic wand type of solution. But I do think that there are ways to address some of the issues that I learned about in my research. I think that organizations have to be a lot more nuanced and mindful about their attempts to recruit and retain workers of color. And I think that the current buzz for a while has been this talk about diversity and equity programs and talking about diversity and inclusion But I think that research also shows that those programs have not been as successful as we might like them to be. So I think that organizations shouldn't begin and end with diversity work or diversity programs. What's probably more, if not equally important, if not more important, is thinking about how organizations may need to restructure or overhaul themselves to be more attuned to a broad array of workers that they have to employ. I also think that it's critical for workers to have more support and power and influence than they currently do. And I think one way, if we're thinking about policymakers and the role that they can play in this, is to be a lot more supportive of unions and collective bargaining. The numbers of workers who belong to unions has declined precipitously over the past several decades. But research also shows that when workers belong to unions, they can actually drive up wages for workers across the board, even those who don't belong in unions. And that historically, unions were kind of at this precipice of being able to create more racial equity before support for them began to decline pretty broadly. So I think those are a couple of steps that can be taken so that black professionals who are becoming a growing number of the demographics that are going to be critical in a more multiracial society can work in environments that are more representative of their experiences and their needs and therefore allow organizations to better serve a more multiracial population that we have now. What has been your personal experience being a PhD, a doctor? Mm-hmm. Have you been called Miss Wingfield? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and how does that feel? You know, actually, it depends for me. I have some colleagues who are very strict about I'm professor such and such, I'm doctor such and such. But I've had a wide experience with working in different educational environments. I have had some students who I think were just not familiar with the norms around higher education. And when it's from students where I can tell that they're just – they're, cu- they're freshmen and they're coming right out of high school and they're used to addressing their teachers as Mrs. Such and Such. For those students, I don't 
ascribe any malicious intent to it. The issues come, I think, when you talk to other colleagues who say, no, that student always calls me professor such and such. That's weird that they refer to you as miss or as a dia. Well, then it's not weird. It's <laughs> pretty clear that you're making an intentional decision to refer to my male colleagues as professor such and such, but to feel as if we're on a familiar enough basis that it's fine for you to refer to me by my first name. Does that surprise you that it's still happening? No. Not at all. I mean, it, with the work that I do where my research focuses so much on issues related to work and racial and gender inequality at work, there's unfortunately very little that surprises me at this point. So let's come back to St. Louis. Okay. I moved here about 15 years ago, and I've crossed the nation, have seen the cities and the goods, the bads, the uglies. Mm-hmm. But I've, I don't think I've ever seen a, a wider gap between the haves and the have-nots, especially in the inner city mm-hmm. here. And I don't see how that could be fixed. Yeah, You see homes without windows, without doors that people are obviously living in, mm-hmm. in 100-degree heat. Mm-hmm. Is this a political situation? Is it a, a social situation? What is the fix? I think it includes aspects of both those things, politics, social division, economic change, and so forth. And you're absolutely right to note that this issue of income inequality is a huge major issue for us as Americans right now. And it's widened to points that I believe were not seen, at least until prior to the Great Depression, that we're back in kind of that era of enormous income inequality. And we know what happened with the Great Depression. It was it was not good. <laughs> right. People were really depressed. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, despite the fact that few things surprise me, I would like to think that I'm still optimistic. And I think that this issue of income inequality isn't something that just happened. It didn't happen by magic. It didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by happenstance. It happened because policy decisions were made that took us in this direction. So I would like to think that given that fact, there are policy decisions that could be made that could take us in a different direction. The challenge, I think, though, is both electing people who have the wherewithal and determination to state that and to enact those policy decisions, but also getting to a point where the broad spectrum of the American public supports things that I think may be anathema to them, at least on first sight. I mentioned before that I think unions are necessary and strengthening unions are necessary for addressing some of the challenges that black workers encounter, but unions are not necessary for black workers alone. Union presence at large helps workers across the board. It helps to increase workers' wages and their working conditions and so forth. But I think that unions have been kind of demonized in many ways to the point where people don't like to think about that as being a potential solution. Uh, Similarly, we know that if we look back historically, particularly during, I believe, the 1950s, there was a much higher tax rate on high-earning people than there is today. That might be something to reconsider. It's to me, it doesn't seem to be that shocking that when tax bases decline, uh, public services also decline as well. And there are consequences when public services decline. So while we may not want to think about raising tax rates on certain populations, we also can look back historically and see that doing so allowed for states and federal governments to have revenues that they could then concentrate in certain areas and in certain ways to benefit, create a broad middle class that was thriving for a period of time. Now, the challenge with that, though, is that when that broad middle class was thriving, that was a middle class that was a predominantly white middle class. We live in a much more racially diverse society now than we did in 1945, 1950, 1955. So some of the issue has to be that we need, in my opinion, to take proactive steps to address a lot of the racial divisions and the 
perceptions that people have of certain racial minority groups being people who don't deserve the same opportunities or benefits or people who haven't earned the right to attend colleges or work in certain high status jobs or benefit from strong public schools and public services and so forth. Because I really do believe that that is part of why we don't see the same support for the public sector, because there's a sense that certain people are abusing the public sector and shouldn't benefit from the same opportunities and resources that other people should be able to benefit from. And I don't think that you get away from that without addressing it head on and talking about it directly and openly. I think we could take up the whole hour talking. Yeah. (laughs) I think I'm going to have to have you back. That would be great. I'd love that. Yeah. So the name of the book? Flatlining, Race, Work, and Inequality in the New Economy. And where can people get it? It should be out in 2019. All right. Well, let's do a fist pound. They can't see it. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was WashU sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield talking about the experiences of black professionals in healthcare with St. Louis Public Radio contributor John Larson. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.